This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is John Freeman, book critic, writer, former editor of Granta, one-time president of the National Book Critics Circle, and author of The Tyranny of Email and How to Read a Novelist, which features 55 profiles he wrote of renowned writers, including Toni Morrison, John Irving, Nadine Gordimer, David Foster Wallace, Doris Lessing, Philip Roth, and more. We started off talking about the notion of the interview and how it is more of a form of conversation than a conversation itself. Well, I do find that um, when you sit down to talk to someone, um, a lot of a lot of your brain is sort of gauging their reaction to you, as well as suppressing anxieties that you have about presenting yourself. And as an interviewer, um, that component of interpersonal communication is can be deadly uh, because you're there to elicit more talk, more interesting um, stories from the novelist, from the poet, from whomever it is that you're interviewing, and. It's very hard to shut that off, um, and a lot of times in conversation, we, we put out fishing lines to the other person for them to say, it's okay, you're okay. And in an interview, that, that really is not okay. Um, <laughs> you're not, uh, even though you're co-creating the text of what the conversation is, the author is really just there um, to talk. And so in the course of doing these interviews, over 13 years, I did discover that it was a very strange but quite effective form of therapy um, about thinking about how I how I perceive myself because it, it basically meant that I had to stop thinking about my own perception and simply just listen. And in the end, for me at least, I don't know if this is the case for other journalists, it's made it easier for me to listen in situations. Um, because I can just shut down uh, the part of my brain which is watching the conversation. And so what, what do you get out of talking to writers? So much. I mean, writers, first of all, are hugely entertaining. They're storytellers, they're professional liars, they're funny. They've often had intense and dramatic experiences. Um, they've wrestled with a lot of the questions, I think, that remain submerged in our own lives, like whether you believe in God or not, because I think that's something... You have to address as a storyteller, um, especially as a novelist, because as a novelist, you are a creator. You're a creator of a world that has to have the coherence and integrity of our own. And even though I'm secular, I I do look at that act, that um, creation, as something holy. And for me, books are the are the things I turn to, not just for comfort and entertainment and pleasure, but for wisdom. And so to sit down with creators, the people whose worlds affected mine, who basically changed my brain, live inside my brain, their characters feel like people I met, is spooky and strange and, and hugely electri- electrifying. I mean, it's it's not like meeting a, meeting a celebrity, which I write in the book, you know, where your eye is kind of readjusting to the physical contours of someone who's captured mostly on film. It's your whole brain getting wrapped around the fact that this person who's created a world that you've lived in, that you've inhabited, that stays with you with memories as if they're your own, especially if they're very, very good, is just a person in flesh and blood. And um, it, it is such a pleasure to talk to them because they can then um, sometimes not deceive you, but they, 
they are not what you expect in, in some cases, that the life that they live is very different from the life um, that they write about in their books. And it's that gap, the gap between the life lived and the one created by the books, which I'm most interested in, and I think is the subject of every profile. Not trying to bring them together and make them the same, but to explore the ways that they're different um, and why they're different. You've worked for years as a book critic, and your work has appeared in almost 200 English language publications around the world. And I'm wondering, what makes a worthy book critic? Generosity. I mean, I think it's it's true of that and of any reader. Um, to be a reader, you have to be willing to say yes, to take the leap of faith, to um, suspend your disbelief, and to put yourself in the hands of another, and usually, if it's a good book, in the life of another. And to be a critic is, is to triple that sort of equation. So you're not just giving in to the book, you're not just giving in to uh, the character's you're giving into the whole project of the writer of trying to understand what they're setting out to do. As a reader, you don't necessarily have to take that on. You you can simply be transported. But as a critic, because you're looking at the construction of a book and and whether it achieves its aims, whether its um, design is sound, um, you have to look very seriously and very carefully at what the writer is trying to do. And the writer will give you clues, and usually it's it's self-evident if you read closely. But many critics, I think, review as if they could go back and redesign the whole scope of a book, or they criticize a book based on something it's not trying to be, or they wish it would be something else. And so I think to be a critic, you have to be generous, because you have that extra extra layer of responsibility of getting deep inside what's, what a writer is attempting to, to do. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is John Freeman, author of How to Read a Novelist. This is background for the next question I'm going to ask, but I'm wondering if you think humans in general, and you in particular, have a desire to be liked. Oh, of course. Otherwise, we would just be fighting and stabbing each other and stealing each other's food. You know, some people can get through life, and I admire them. I'm not one of them. Um, without caring whether they're liked or not. Um, Some people go through life uh, caring too much, changing what they are doing so that they can be liked. And I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not one of those people either. Um, But I think it's it's a very natural instinct to want to be liked. And so how do you go with that almost primal need to be liked, or at least it's learned, to writing maybe a bad review? Well, I think as a reviewer you have you know, three points of duty. One is to the audience. That's probably the highest. They're reading the newspaper or the magazine or they're listening to you on the radio, and they want to know as you start talking, tell me a story, entertain me, and also tell me along the way what it felt like to read that book and whether I should read it, whether I should buy it. And I've never found any of those functions at war with each other. I don't think a good book review um, should leave you unclear as to whether you should spend your money on the book. So in some ways, you're not just talking to the author, and in many ways, you're not talking to them at all. A lot of authors, once they get to a certain point, don't read their reviews. So it's a fallacy for critics to think that they're giving suggestions to Salman Rushdie or Joyce Carol Oates. You know, in their book reviews, they're not. They're not reading them. For me, once that 
is firmly in your head, the idea of saying things which are unpleasant or maybe not hurtful uh, but critical about a body of work which took an author upwards of 19 years sometimes to create, it's not the most pleasant thing in the world. Um, But to be a critic, you have to be rigorous and you have to be willing to be fair-minded and yet um, describe exactly what the experience of reading a book is like and whether it's good. And if you can't do that, then you can't sign on for it. You were the president of the National Book Critics Circle, and while you were there, you pushed for an advocacy arm or level of that organization to basically save the book review? I saw that um, the newspapers were cutting back on their book sections, and it was a fact. People were losing their jobs, sections were getting smaller, and that there was no kind of central comment on this. Um, and the book, the National Book Critics Circle was never really an advocacy group. Um, it was rather a prize-giving group in a world in which um, the authority of critics, their ability to promote um, the, the, the responsibility of expertise and to publish um, was never in question. And the fact that prizes uh, at that point, when it, the Book Critics Circle started, were not that numerous. There was a few prizes, and the Book Critics Circle started up in response to a prize which they felt had gone off the rails, as they say. Um, and yet, 30 years later, when I was president, um, none of those things were the case. The Internet was around. People were questioning centralized authority when it came to culture in terms of programming on television, on radio. Um, people were wondering whether bloggers were as uh, important or if not more important than book reviewers because they weren't enmeshed in the power systems of the centralized culture, which is in publishing in New York. And so all those things were in question. And as a result, I think no one stopped and said, well, okay, irregardless of who has the power to comment on books and how that is distributed, is the loss of these book pages a bad thing? And um, everyone, I think, unilaterally would have said yes. Granted, some book reviews written for newspapers were not always poetry on deadline. Um, And there is this horrible, I think, instinct to look at everything in our life in America on the basis of market economics. Like, perhaps if those book reviews were not that well-written, maybe they should not be published. Um, And, Grant, you know, if you look at newspapers around this country, I was just reading one 30 minutes ago before I I, I sat down for this interview. I'm I'm in Canada, um, but I was reading pieces and thinking, this is not the best writing, but I'm glad it's here so that I can know about upcoming concerts and things I can do in Vancouver. And no one was saying, okay, it's not all perfect, but what happens if it goes? And so I sort of tried to get a campaign going to to save the book review. Um, And this included, you know, having a petition um, going around signed by 14,000 writers, including Norman Mailer, who got his share of bad reviews, and John Updike and others, um, and sending that to uh, newspaper publishers around the country. Uh, we picketed outside of the office of the, of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, um, uh, which cut its book review editor and was, was shifting its pages. Um, and so we had a little p- picket line outside. Um, and, you know, by some fluke of me knowing someone and someone knowing someone, Salman Rushdie went on to the Colbert Report and talked about this. 
And that, to me, was really heartening. Salman Rushdie got the worst book review of all time, which was Fatwa, which was put on him by Ayatollah Khomeini for uh, Satanic Verses, which is a book he never read, which makes him a terrible critic. <laughs> you know, and But even Rushdie was saying, we need these things. Um, we need them to help people know about books, to help critique the books, to have a vibrant culture. Um, and so it started a discussion, and that was the whole point. Um, I never thought that you know, there would be some sort of uh, dump truck full of people sitting outside of newspaper offices in 400 cities around America shouting, we want our book reviews. But I did think if it became a visible topic of conversation and there was some effort to contact newspaper publishers in markets where the, the paper was making noises about layoffs, um, that some of it could be stopped, and I think it did stop some of those cutbacks. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is John Freeman, author of How to Read a Novelist. One of the things you said earlier about the National Book Critics Circle is that it's really there to give awards. And I'm wondering what makes a book worthy of an award? Beauty and importance. Um, and the feeling that the writer has achieved something um, that makes it excellent. And achievement in the arts is so hard to quantify. It's not like Usain Bolt, where you think, is he going to break 9.5 seconds in the, in the 100 meters? With a book, it, it could be in the same area, the same topic area. It could be in the same vein and style of other books which have come before it. Um, but there is, in aesthetics, you, you, look at, you look for intensity and coherence and beauty and, and innovation. And it's there, there's no way to graph that out. Um, but with really good books, you know, um, it's not. it was never, I found, that hard to, to go from a list of hundreds of books down to 30. And for me, it never felt that hard to go from that 30 down to maybe 12. And then once you're in to that realm, you start debating them. It's, it's often like comparing apples and oranges, but you start to, debating the relative merits of the books. It, is this one singular in what it's done? Is this book, if this book is in the vein of other books, is it that much better? Um, is this the best book that this writer has, has written to date? And you start, you know, thinking and talking and debating. Um, and, and a lot of your debates become emotional um, because to some, some degree it's often about squaring the achievement, the artistic achievement, with the material that the writer is working in. As in, is this book important? And you can wind up in very interesting and complicated debates that way. So, you know, let's look back at Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping, which is a book largely about domestic life, and how would you compare it to Elias Khoury's Gate of the Sun, uh, which is about the Nakba, or the partition uh, of of Israel out of um, the former Palestine, and what, what that did and how it created sort of... Uh, generations of loss within both sides, in the Israeli and Palestinian side. Um, and it's, it's probably the best book ever about that topic, uh, in my mind. Um, and and yet, Marilyn Robinson's book has this almost otherworldly uh, beauty to the writing that's just so pure and distilled, and it's hard to imagine. It's like looking at a lake and realizing a lake is made up of billions and trillions and however many thousands of drops of water. And you look at a book like Housekeeping, you feel that. You think, this, was, this is a book made of words. It's made of punctuation marks. 
of someone sitting down with a pen or pencil or a typewriter back then um, and making a story. And you look at it and you think, how was this done? And when a book gives you that feeling, that kind of tingly feeling, you know it's it's worthy of, of some recognition. And in our culture, because as we've just been talking about, there are fewer ways to, to talk about the kind of public dreaming novelists do and to meditate on that and criticism. We're, we've kind of branded um, quality in the form of these awards. And the brand comes from the books that have come before the ones that are most recently selected. So the Pulitzer, you know, you think, well, Cormac McCarthy won the Pulitzer, uh, Annie Prue won the Pulitzer, and you look back at those books and think, oh, this is a good prize. And it's the same with car makers or uh, potato chip makers. You think back on the experience and, you know, what was it good? And books are often the, the marketing devices of the awards which award them. And in some ways, that's great because it forces uh, people to read the books. It doesn't force them. It compels them to, in, in some cases. That's one of the great things about the awards now, that even though if they're working in a system, a slightly debased system of, of branding and, and imagery, they are getting people to read books. That's, that's always a good thing. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is John Freeman, author of How to Read a Novelist. I'm wondering if you could read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. It's funny, to in the middle of this conversation about novelists, who I absolutely adore and are always the, the, the thing by my bedside to turn to poetry, um, but I, I'm going to read a, from a poem by James Wright. I'm reading from it because it's about Ohio, and the kind of sprung rhythms of it and the beauty of it are something I look for when I read novels. I think the best novelists, whether it's Ralph Ellison or Virginia Woolf or Mo Yan or Marquez or... Toni Morrison, whomever, you could almost put line breaks into their sentences and turn them into poetry. And this one goes like this. It's a poem called Autumn Begins in Martin's Ferry, Ohio. In the Shreve High football stadium, I think of Pollocks nursing long beers in Tiltonsville and gray faces of Negroes in the blast furnace at Benwood and the ruptured night watchmen of wheeling steel dreaming of heroes. All the proud fathers are ashamed to go home. Their women cluck like starved pullets dying for love. Therefore, their sons grow suicidally beautiful at the beginning of October and gallop terribly against each other's bodies. Do you want to say anything else about why you chose that? I mean, obviously there are some dated words in there, and yet I grew up in a sporting town mostly, of Sacramento. I was born in Cleveland, but I grew up a lot in Sacramento. And I played lots and lots of sports. And to me, it was the sports were not always just bread and circuses. They were not just entertainment. You could see the just the drama of everything around you and the parents and the families and what the town thought of itself by how they came out to a football game or a basketball game. And this poem brings all that back to me. And I just and I think the language of it, the kind of lyricism within ugliness is, is really a, something else. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? You could pick something that was hard to write, tell us why, or something that you really liked, or something that changed a lot from the first draft. Well, I, I thought I would just read from 
the introduction of, of this book because it's about John Updike and I went through a period, period of idolizing Updike, almost modeling my life after Updike, collecting his books, getting signed first editions, getting married, you know, you know, selling those books to get married, to get a ring, moving to New England um, with my wife, and then, just like so many Updike characters, getting divorced. And I write about this in the introduction because I, all that came to a head in an interview I had with Updike, um, uh, oddly enough, on the day I, I got divorced. So it goes like this. We got divorced in the fall. Leslie had moved to California, and the laws of Maine, where we had married, required one of us to be present during the final divorce proceedings. I drove up from New York alone and spent the night with my soon-to-be ex-in-laws in their house on the beach, eating the most uncelebratory lobster dinner I have ever eaten. The next morning, I drove to, drove to the court with Leslie's mother, who waited outside the empty chambers while I cut the thin legal string that still connected me to her daughter. I didn't drive directly home. That afternoon, by a fluke of scheduling, I had arranged to interview John Updike at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. He had just published a collection of essays on art called Still Looking, and the interview conceit was that we'd wander among the paintings so he could riff on art in real time. It was not my first time meeting him in an interview context. Four months after my wedding, I'd interviewed him about his 20th novel, Seek My Face. I'd been dazzled by his gentle but colossal intelligence and relieved to be able to treat him as an interview subject rather than the living embodiment of an abandoned dream. I got lost on my way to the museum, though, and arrived late. I discovered Updike waiting by the foyer, dressed in khaki slacks and a sport coat. Just over 70 years old, he had a full head of hair and the cold physical presence of a man in good shape. We passed through a few galleries, Updike dispatching prose poems of appreciation with chummy good humor, as if surprised by how easily his mind created verbal felicitations. At some point I began to flag, however, because he turned to me and said, Is this enough? I mean, you look pretty tired, I understand. You're coming from Vermont. I told him it was not Vermont, but Maine, and in response to his question about what I was doing up there, I said, I was getting divorced. The interview came to a dead halt. Updike turned to me with real feeling, his ironic pose collapsing for once. I'm really sorry, he said. He would not allow me to make light of my newly minted divorce. Instead, he had gone through this once before, too, which I knew, and that it was hell. His advice continued briefly, but it was so surreal to hear him reference his private life that today I can hardly remember what he said. Apparently, though, he remembered. When Terrace, his most recent novel, which at the time of this writing, approached publication, a newspaper asked me if I could once again speak to John Updike. I called his publisher and was put on a junket schedule and then bumped and bumped again. Finally, I got through to his publicist, who switched from speakerphone to handset. We got some mixed feedback from John on the last conversation, the publicist explained. My ripped jeans and two days' growth might have been noted, my interview explosion of personal detail, which I remembered as more of a leak, had possibly made John feel uncomfortable. I had to understand John was of the old school. I didn't know what to say. At first, I was hurt and embarrassed, but soon I became more circumspect. If I hadn't known it before, I knew it now. It was a breach of everyone's privacy when a reader turns to a writer or a writer's work for vicariously learned solutions to his own life problems. This is the fallacy behind every interview or biographical sketch. To tether a writer's life too literally to his work or to insist that a novel function as a substitute for actually living through the mistakes a person much actually lived through. 
in order to learn how to properly, maybe even happily survive. All right. Thanks for sharing that. And why did you pick that segment? Well, it's the hardest thing to write because it was me basically falling on my face in an interview uh, assignment. Um, and it was l- learning a lesson um, that, you know, that the interview really is about just getting that author to talk, which is strange because an interview is meant to humanize the writer, make, make them less remote. Um, and yet in order to do that, you have to do things which are not usual to conversation. And yet it's still fun to do. You know, it's a privilege to talk to writers, especially writers like Updike or Tony Morrison or David Foster Wallace. I, I'm still somehow baffled that that has become my life, that I spent a lot of time talking to, to writers so good, so so essential to the way um, I feel life is lived. So where do you write? I write usually at coffee shops. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, it's funny. The, the, the real answer to that is you never get away as a writer. It's always on. It's like a nightlight or, you know, a Klieg light, and it pops on at times when you are really not thinking at all about writing. Um, I do think it's virtually impossible to write while running. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, I never show my reviews to anyone um, or the profiles because I've been doing it so long that if I don't, uh, you know, if I'm stuck, I usually know why I'm stuck. I just know that I need time to figure out a solution to the problem. And I can usually identify the problem. Um, it's in other forms that I feel a little bit less comfortable. So if I'm writing a nonfiction book, um, I usually would send it to my editor um, if, if it was under contract. I've only published two books, so I've been lucky in that regard that I could send it to someone as I was writing it, working on it, revising it for them. How have you dealt with rejection? It depends when it happens. You know, um, I try to have lots of different things happening when I'm writing. You know, if I I don't want to have just one. Um, thing that needs to be responded to. Uh, so I submit poems. I'm working on reviews. I've got a book, you know, under contract to follow the one that I, I'm just publishing right now. And that way, when rejection comes, which it will, it always does more often than acceptance. Um, it's not uh, the gut punch that it normally is. And what is your favorite word? Oh, this is a funny question because in putting this book together, as I mentioned, it was written over 13 years for different venues. And so as I put together the pieces, like I got to see words which clearly for a time had been my favorite word. And I like to use them. So um, soulful was a word I, I used a lot. <laughs> in, in different prof... And, you know, not a lot, but maybe five times over the course of the book. Um, another another one, which I kept coming across, is, is eerie. I had to cut those out. And I also learned... Um, something about myself as a writer, which is that even if you're writing about different things, you can start to try to import the same ways of saying something into an article, into a book. Um, and that's that's when you are you should take a break because you're being lazy. Because um, the, the most exciting writing, is think, it feels like it's thinking about something for the first time, like it's never been said before. So my favorite word um, at the moment, uh, and I'll probably change this, is refract to refract something, you know, it's like sending light through a prism. And I think that's what great writing does, is it refracts um, the nature of experience and consciousness and love and, and, and grief and life and belief and, and all the things that make up our lives. It refracts those through the experiences and the previous reading of the writer's mind. Um, and so when you're reading a book, 
especially novels, I think, you're getting a really real intimate glimpse into the shape and contours of a writer's mind. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was John Freeman, author of How to Read a Novelist. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.